You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, this is a relaunch of Discovering Truth. Since we paused the podcast in 2021, my wife and I had a baby. Say hi, baby. This is Dylan, and he is a champion. We've been focusing here in Katy, Texas, on a local church plan of Bride Ministries, along with the expansion of all kinds of other ministry outreaches. And it has been an intense year, which means I do not regret pausing this podcast. But I'll tell you what, friends, we are back. And when our ministry board met a few months ago, we decided that the future of this podcast is best served by having it completely separated from the ministry. So after years, and you know, I think uh, we launched the podcast back in 2012. It's been an outreach of Bride Ministries the whole time. But uh, at, at, at this juncture, we felt now uh, the future of the podcast is best served by having it completely separate. So we had a vote and the podcast, along with all associated carrying costs, was released into my personal custody. So now we're running both and Broad Ministries continues stronger than ever, but the podcast is no longer supported by donations to Broad Ministries, which means two things. Number one, we now have full liberties to exercise free speech, even into the area of politics going forward. And, uh, you know, for those of you that understand uh, Heavenly Scrolls, I, I, I believe that there are new scrolls opening up at this season, and uh, this is all necessary. The flip side of the coin is that this podcast is no longer uh, supported by the church or any kind of um, ministry covering. In other words, uh, donations to Bride Ministries are not going to help me run this. So we have a few choices, and uh, that was either to deduct it from our household income how do you feel about that, Dylan? No college for you, friend. So, uh, no, he doesn't like that. So, uh, the other options were supported with ads or supported with podcast patrons. We decided that uh, our listening audience would be best served if they're able to enjoy the podcast without regular interruptions for ads. Therefore, if you visit dandevall.com, you'll find your opportunity to become a podcast patron. This is not a tax-deductible donation at all. It's a contribution to help us carry the cost of the podcast, and you can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. In return, you'll get an invitation for the Manifest Space Network, email updates, merchandise discounts, invitations to ask questions to podcast guests, free course taught by me, and early access to podcasts. So that's going to come in real handy when there's a uh, sequel coming with an awful, awful uh, cliffhanger that you've been waiting for, and you just don't want to wait that extra day. Now, we're also selling merchandise to help with the carrying costs of the podcast at dandavall.com. You'll find shirts, mugs, robes, handbags, all kinds of other cool items that can be purchased. Uh, So be sure to check out the store and keep in mind, all shipping in the U.S. is free and So that's what you get discounts on if you are a podcast patron. Lastly, when you visit dandevall.com, you'll learn about our newest project called Overcomer Accelerated. It's not part of the outreach of Bride Ministries, but it's an opportunity to get an all-inclusive experience. It's modeled after the DID Coach Mentorship Program that is run through Bride Ministries and still runs. We'll be doing a class of 2023. But um, this 
this is for uh, survivors, people that are trying to take a healing and deliverance journey. And it'll offer you the opportunity to have book studies. You'll have a support group. You'll have weekly coaching. You'll have all kinds of um, support throughout this uh, 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 arrangement. Um, and, and, and the whole purpose is to give that cohort experience. You're not just healing by yourself, you're healing in a community and you're being educated in the process. And so we believe that this is gonna be an awesome way that we are able to serve people. And um, a lot of the folks that are coaching as volunteers um, at, at, at bride ministries are going to be involved in this project. And so um, same standard of care and service, but it uh, is a separate offering entirely. And so if you check out Overcomer Accelerated, you can see the different tiers of what those mean and what the different prices get you. And that's all at dandevall.com. So with that said, we're going to get to our first guest launching this podcast again. I'll see you on the other side. Those were your announcements. Well, folks, I'm having an amazing conversation with a gentleman by the name of Tony Rodriguez. We have been just chatting it up for the past hour and kind of jumping into this interview in the middle of our uh, personal uh hangout time. This is really cool. Now, uh, you're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall, and you know me, right? I go there and I talk about that stuff. And so does Tony, right? He has written this book. I would hold it up and show you, but um, my copy was taken by a dear friend of ours across state lines so they could read it, um, Series Colony Cavalier. And um, I'll tell you, uh, the book is just extremely well done. And the reason why Tony's hanging out with me today is because he's going to talk about his 20 and back, and he's going to talk about uh, a lot of <laughs> things that connect a lot of dots. Now, uh, if you've been following this podcast for years, you know, we're, we're talking about the Illuminati. We're talking about hollow earth. We're talking about entities off planet stuff, conspiracy. I mean, we've gone there. And of course we talk about Jesus and um, you know, in bringing Tony on, uh, this is a gentleman, he doesn't know who I am, at least not before an hour ago, um, you know, and, and, and folks, you know, he's not, he, he's not here to teach us necessarily the Bible. He's here to talk about what he experienced and went through, um, and, and that's okay. And, uh, you know, if you hear him say some things, that's, well, that's not exactly what Dan said, but that's because we're having a conversation. We're two human beings that have crossed paths and are, uh, you know, uh, talking about some phenomena that absolutely deserves a discussion. I, uh, I, I'm celebrating you right now, Tony, and uh, thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, I'm very honored and learning about what you're doing and I guess your history of what you've been doing is just wonderful. There's so many people that have come to me since I've gone public with my story that I've tried to help as best I can, but there's only so much one guy can do. And so it's great that there's other people out there that are working with people because, you know, the big thing is just being able to talk about these experiences with somebody that's not going to shoot you down uh, in the beginning. I think that's one of the best ways to uh, in- digest it and overcome it. You know, it's just being able to be feel accepted 
and internalizing what happened. And that was certainly what happened to me. That's right. You know, and so Tony, I mean, I'm here as an advocate for survivors of every kind of dilemma, government projects, uh, sex trafficking, um, gosh, satanic ritual abuse backgrounds, and, 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 and your background that, that you've written about and that's such an incredible recall about, which it blown my mind, right? Um, includes elements of all of the above, many of the, I mean, the Illuminati connection, uh, satanic rituals and, and, and certainly government projects. And so um, we're here to talk about it. And I want to jump in um, actually way later in your story. Uh, specifically, you had a few cookie crumbs, but you had an MRI later in life that changed everything. And, and I, I want to let you kind of open up your story for us. Um, because look, I talk to a lot of people, right? And, and people, they, they, they're, they're, they're saying, I'm a targeted individual. I don't know what it is, but weird things happen to me all the time. I'm, I'm affected in, in strange ways. I get stalked. Um, I have problems with electronic device. I, I don't know why I get harassed in these ways. And then there'll be a breaking point where suddenly some memories start to arise. Well, you had an incredible past and then you didn't know. But talk about before and after this MRI, what, what happened? So, okay. Uh, yeah, that's a big, that's the first time somebody started an interview with that for me. So that's great. Um, uh, it was uh, April of 2015. And um, I went to the doctor for a checkup. We were in Hawaii. So the medical system there, you get checkups. And I went to the checkup and the doctor said, new doctor. And she was she was very good. good. And she said, uh, I said, I've been having headaches in the back of my head. I'm having like a dull headache and it's not going away. It's like, I probably needed glasses or something. But she said, why don't you, while you're here, because it's your checkup, why don't you go down and get an MRI? And I was kind of reluctant. And I said, okay, whatever, we'll go and check it out. And in just the same building. And I went down and got an MRI scan on my head, just from the shoulders up. And they put me in the machine. It was a simple scan, no injections or anything. And, um, you know, that was it. I went home. But uh, I want to say uh, 10 days later, I started feeling really drawn to the information. Like I always had, and, and I, I want, to, I want to preface all this by saying that I always had pretty clear memories of the initial incident where I was taken by extraterrestrials out of my room. So the first 20, 30 minutes of the entire ordeal, I never forgot. That was something that didn't get erased by them. They erased memories and it was something that didn't. And then as I grew up, I was 10 years old when they took me. And as I grew up, I was 17, I was 25. I would get bleed through memories that didn't make any sense. And they were not like dreams. They weren't, they weren't like dreams because in a dream, if you're walking down the beach in a dream and you try to think of how you got there, there is no memory of how you got there because you just instantly began dreaming that you were on a beach. It's, that's how dreams work. Memories, however, if you're walking down the beach and you go, wait a minute, I can remember the parking lot and I can remember driving here and I can remember waking up and taking a shower and brushing my teeth. This isn't a dream, is it? And I had, I kept having these in the daytime when I was sleeping, like right before I wake up, I'd get these. And they were memories, and but they didn't make any sense because I also had the same memories in my life. So, so they were fragmented, 
They were all over different ages. And so mm-hmm. it led me to believe that I was taken several times, but I was wrong because I, I couldn't explain it. And I thought, you know, in, the, in this memory, I had a career. I was sitting and working at a computer terminal and I knew my job well. I knew what I was doing. Like it, it's not the experience of dreaming that I'm entering data into a computer. It was like the experience of dreaming that I'm doing something that I do all the time. And I thought, when could I have done that? I was really, you know, it didn't make any sense to me. So about 10 days after the MRI, they started really get, you know, I started really getting curious about those memories. They like explaining what the heck. And I found the, uh, the account of somebody called Randy Kramer. And he explained that they're doing a 20, basically the basics of the 20 and back technology where they take you and they can age regress you and put you back the same day they took you. In other words, they take you, it took me at 10 years old. It was a Thursday and I woke up Friday morning after I had been gone for 20 years. And I had the sensation of being gone for you know the time, but I had no memories of it. Like the memories were deleted. So it's, I know that's not, that doesn't explain it very well, but that's basically the phenomenon and the technology. And there's thousands of people that are starting to talk about it now. Um, but when he said that, all those memories came together. It was coincidentally right after the MRI. And all those memories that I knew weren't dreams because I went, oh, that's what they did. And I went, oh my God, that was real. Oh, and I kept saying, I kind of sat back in my chair. I was in my, I was, um, in my garage with the door open, looking out at my yard, I was just kind of relaxing. And I went, oh my God, that was real. And as I did that, when I accepted it, when I accepted those memories as not false, as not a dream or some kind of weird thing, when I said that was real, then the rest of them came and then like they connected. Like there was a, there was a, there was a congealing of, of the memories. And I realized, and I, and I, right. I was freaked out and I go, okay, well, okay, whatever. I'm just going to go on. I'm going to go in there and hang out with my wife and watch TV. I think we, you know, we watched big brother that night or something that, you know, when I got my recall back and I sat there and it was, they were still coming and it just was like, it came and I kind of put it off. And the next morning when I woke up, I thought, man, there's too much here. I need help. I need somebody to talk to about this. Uh, What am I going to do with this? And what I did then was I started to remember places on earth that I'd been in the 20 and back. So, um, for the people listening or watching, I don't know. For people that are, that are listening, uh, of course you want proof, right? Of course you go, that's great, Tony, but you know, do you got any proof? You got any meat on the bone here? And really there's tons of proof. So if you, if you have all day, I can sit down and, and give you all my evidence. There's quite a bit. There's enough evidence to convince some of the finest researchers in ufology to sponsor and write a forward in my book and push my book on their shows. And I've been, on, I've been at this for six years now. Um, but what I found was that there was a place in Seattle that I lived during those 20 years for a couple of years. And there was a town in Peru that I lived. And so I remember, I began to remember Peru. So I didn't know anything about it at the time. And I began to remember the town with the airstrip and I go, maybe it's on Google. And I sat down on my computer. This is the next day after it. So this is May of April. It was the end of April. I got my MRI and it was the first week or two of May that I got the memories back in 2015. And I started looking at Google and I went, what? And I found the town and I go, and I, and not only that, so if you think about finding somebody on Google earth that you've never been, that you've never physically been, I can prove it easily because I, you know, I've only ever left the country to go to Canada and Australia. I've never been to Peru. So there's no stamp, but, um, 
if you see somewhere you've never been before on Google Earth, and then all of a sudden, I remember walking in the streets on when it was raining. I remember fishing in the ponds that he took me with. I remember eating in the cafeteria. I could look at all these buildings. And I went, I know this whole, whole area. And, the, and I know where they set up a temporary shower at the end of the airstrip. On and on and on. The gold mine down the street where the we're down on the under the river. Like I knew the area intimately well as you have to not live somewhere and then i found the house in seattle and it was the same experience i knew the it was on an island one of the islands near seattle and i i found the house and i went there's the swimming pool i spent hours and hours and hours in the summertime we we were like a foster home with a bunch of boys and we i was swimming in the pool and i found the pool and i everything else so then i went and i immediately um like i said i, I looked in the phone book once and i wanted counseling and I knew that I would be medicated immediately, that no counselor, no professional counselor is going to entertain time travel and cloning and such. So I didn't bother with that. And then I had to sit down with my wife. Uh, you know, like we talked over, we talked off camera. I just, my wife who thought that if there was ETs, they'd be in the Bible. So she doesn't, she doesn't, I, I, I really still think that she's kind of skeptical, but she accepts what I do. I spend a lot of time giving interviews and the book. I travel a lot. I go to talk. So she's, She's supportive in her way, but um, it's something that she's, you know, people that follow ufology tend to have had something happen to them that leads them to know that it's real. People that follow the, 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 the fringe stuff have experienced things, and my wife just hasn't experienced anything. So she gives me my space. But I sat down with her that day, like the, I think on the third day after I got my marriage back, and we went out, I made a bonfire, and I said, leave, leave your phone in the house, hon. And I set my phone down and I, I, I laid everything on her and I said, please prove me wrong. Please, I want you to be the skeptic and ask me the hardest questions you can possibly ask. Please dash this to pieces and so we can put it to bed. And because something's wrong here. And if, if I'm wrong, if you can, if you can skip, you know, ask me questions that I can't answer and I, you know, I, we can move on. I want to be able to move on, but otherwise I have to pursue this. I have to talk to people. And she couldn't. And by the end of the night, on the third night, we did we did three bonfires for three nights where she came at me with questions. She thought about it all day. And on the end of the third night, I had her believing in extraterrestrials because she just couldn't. There was no there was no loophole. You know, I had the, I had the entire work in my head. So and it's a very strange experience to have answers to things that I'd never thought about. So people ask me questions and I go, oh, well, no, no, no. You know, and I have the answer because of that knowledge that was suppressed that I got access to. It's so like a wall went down and I had access to that knowledge. So, and then the, the spiritual component, you know, like, um, you know, I'd like, I'd like to learn more about you. And you know what I mean? Like everybody has their, has their beliefs. And I know that you read parts of the book where I called on Jesus and, and had results and I have my own kind of thing, my own beliefs. And, uh, how that works. And I, I feel, like I said, uh, you know, everybody has their, everybody's relationship with God is between them and God. Right. Uh, you know, th I think that's a sovereign right about every living being ever. And um, so I, because I don't know much about it because of what I lived through and how that went, because I don't know much about it. I don't really, I don't really remark on that part of the story very often of what happened, but it was a very profound thing that, that I'm shocked that I don't get asked about more often, to be honest. So, yes. And uh, like I said, before we got on camera, when I got to the end of the book, it was almost like a stand up and cheer moment for me personally. But 
Uh, we're not at the end of the book right now because my listening audience <laughs> is okay. Uh, Peru, off the coast of Washington, memories of being somewhere you never went. How'd you get there? And that is where we begin to connect the dots. And so in your book, Series Colony Cavalier, and, and, and for those of you that are listening um, on iTunes and some, all of our different uh, outlets, podcasts, right? Um, and you didn't see him hold the book up. It's Cirrus, C-E-R-E-S. That's the name because it's not serious like the constellation. It's uh, it, it gets confused with the star quite often. Yeah, it's Ceres, but it's C-E-R-E-S. It's a dwarf planet in between Mars and the asteroid belt. Sorry. So you started getting all of these pieces. And, and, and man, like, how do you reconcile memories of Peru when there is no record of, of you being there? And, you know, in some cases, right, when I meet people, we learned they were well, sold into government projects by their parents. They, they were trafficked over international lines. Um, I've had plenty of those stories before. Your story's different. In, in your story, there was an abduction. And what led up to that is also fascinating. So let's rewind to 10 years old. Sure. What happens? 10 years old, I was living in Southern Michigan. Um, I was in uh, Willis, Michigan. And I was going to a school, an old school, um, you know, like a B class school. I think we had four or 500 kids in my class and I was in so fourth grade at the time. And I was the, uh, in the talented and gifted program. So we were the top 5% of the school got funding for, um, advanced learning class. And it was like every Wednesday at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, the kids from that would go to the library. And we had a teacher and we'd sit down and they was like learning how to look things up in the library, advanced learning stuff. So pre-college, maybe, I don't know. But, um, there was a kid in there that wrote and it was a rural school. So we're kind of out in the cornfields and there was a kid there that had just was a new kid that year. And he would come to school sometimes in a limousine and get dropped off. And he was just, I just, he was really smart. And I, I was, I was proud of being smart. And in that, you know, in my house, when I went home to my brothers and sisters, I was the smart one now because I was in that class. So it was like, I had a great deal of pride. I was cocky. And here comes this kid who was clearly smarter than me. And so I didn't like him and we didn't get along and I kind of picked out. And one day he says on a Wednesday, one Wednesday, we're sitting there just those kids. And he goes, my dad's an Illuminati. What's your dad do? And he was, he was condescending is what that, it, it was an insult, but I didn't understand what I said. What is he a banker or something? And, um, so I said, my dad works for GM. My dad's got a great job, you know, and which he did. And um, whatever, uh, we didn't get along. And then one day his dad came in and was the judge for the science fair. And I believe it was in April of that year, um, April of 82. So it was a school year from 81 to 82. Early accounts of my memories, I thought I was nine years old in 81 because I did the grade. But really, I realized that it was after the first of the year. So I was 10. I turned 10 in, in February and... So um, little details are important to researchers like that. Uh, so in April 82, his dad came in and we were setting up on a when it was a Wednesday, the science fair. And I said, we were setting our exhibits up in the cafeteria. So the talented and gifted class were the participants of the science fair. And so I came in and I walked right by him and his dad. And he goes, dad, that's that boy I told you about that ruined my confidence. 
That's what he said. And then his dad said some other things. Like they had a conversation about like out loud within earshot of me about me rudely and talked about me. And I didn't understand it. So I just went on about my way because I was, you know, I just went on. And the next day was a Thursday. And that's when I woke up in the middle of the night. Um, the phone, we had the old phone. It was ringing. We had lights. There was a big bright light outside shining down from the sky from, from above. And there was weird happenings went on for 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And I woke up and there was a gray, what, you know, what we see in the movies and everybody art like a great ET. And I thought it was my dad playing a joke on me. Cause he was, a, my dad was like a really heavy prankster. And I said, dad, take off the mask. You're not being funny. And I reached up and I touched its face and it was cold and wet. It was, it had, it was like, it had diet porous. It was very porous and, and cold. And I went, ah, I, you know, I went to scream and it paralyzed me, whatever it did. There was some, and I was paralyzed. And then uh, three or four other shorter reptilian looking people. And ETs are people. So that's just, it's an important, that's a great way to just, I always call it, they're, they're just people. Once they get up to, once they get up to 150,000 words and more then it could be a bucket of goo, it's still a person. And, you know, um, so they came in and grabbed me. And I remember I kind of passed out, took me to the end of, edge of my bed. There was a flash of light. And I was, I, the next thing I remember, I was on a table and they were explaining that they wanted my help. And I was taken into these programs and they said they were going to take me for 20 years and bring me right back that I was lucky that I was, it was a blessing and I was very fortunate to be chosen. That's kind of how they talked to me. And they got, they had to get consent. They said, will you, will you consent to do this with us? And I thought it was a first contact situation. I was thrilled. I thought, I thought tomorrow on the news, I'm going to see ETs and I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? I'm in on it. I, I was excited. I was happy. And so, yeah, I said, sure. I want to help you guys. And boom, it was a surgical procedure. And then I woke up with no memories. So what's interesting is that I got those memories back then. Another point, another contention, a point of evidence is that I woke up in Inulkern, um, next to Ridgecrest, California, by China Lake in California, which China, I mean, I said China Lake, you know, I saw the look on your face. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I know so if exactly you look on the map, what you're talking about. If you look on the map in your current, it's, uh, I don't know, 10 miles, 11 miles, maybe uh, west of China Lake. But it was um, um, the airport there. And there were three portables, you know, portable buildings that were um, situated on the, you know, where the um, the hangar, uh, hangars were. Um, it's a smaller airport. And there was a bunch of kids and I got a medical examination and I had no memory. I could hardly even talk. I had to, it took me a while to get the speech memory, but I had no memory of mom and dad or what I was. And he said, I was a clone. He, he said, because you're clones for the, for the project, he was told that he had a bunch of kids, a dozen kids that were clones because they began to put us through trauma-based mind control program. And then that morphed into, once we passed certain tests, it morphed into a remote viewing uh, program. And so what's interesting about the reason I'm going into depth about this, because I really want to just throw it to you and get into the more questions. But the, um, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I also found evidence. So those same three buildings, um, I believe were tore down and then they put new buildings in their place. But um, I think in 2019, I had a, a researcher, like a, a, somebody that's very talented at researching 
they said, I want to help you out. I want to work. Well, let's research and prove you right, Tony. And what he did was went to a, there's a database. There's a website that has every structure in the United States must have a tax assessment. So if you put up a shed, you must register with the taxes that it has a tax assessment. So you pay taxes. Every single structure in the United States is on this website for that reason. So it's the database. And he got access to it. And he went on there and found that those three buildings that I said, he said, you know, that's funny. I can't find the, because we tracked it back to Project Grill Flame, the funding from Project Grill Flame, the dates act match up and the personnel matches up. So there's a lot of things I don't talk about publicly, um, but other researchers know because there are real, real people and real and and real people involved. And some of the names I protect because they have family members and it's like, you know, it's, a, it's just a minefield um, to go on a podcast and start yelling at other people's names. But the names matched up with Project Grow Flame. And in Inyo Kern there, those three buildings, he said on this database, those buildings don't exist. They don't exist. And they're classified as a special district. And he said, I don't know what the heck that is. So he went and researched what a special district is in Cal state of California. And it's somewhere that is on a congressional level of jurisdiction. So not only, not only were kids being tortured in there, but it was perfectly legal. The local law enforcement and, in fact, the state troopers and the military police do not have jurisdiction inside a special district. So inside those buildings, no law enforcement had jurisdiction. It was only a congressionally appointed officer of the law could go in there and actually dictate law. So this, so that's, you know what I mean? It's, does it prove everything right in the book? No, but it is very supportive because it shows that the program that I identified and the methods that I remembered and identified with researchers that have, you know, can draw lines with other people that do it was perfectly legal. And that's exactly how they would go about that. So um, that was something that's, that's something that I always like to, to, to mention because um, there's a lot of questions that come up. You know, when you talk about what we went through as kids at those age, at that age. And then from there, I went to Seattle for a week or so, a few days. And then I was shipped off to Peru where what they did was, you know, the long story short out of that entire program, they cranked out a bunch of kids that were prepubescent children. And they would put a, give us an IV in our arm and give us a drug that would bring us near to death. And when we were near to death, they could ask us questions and other other intelligences would speak through us. And so they were using us. I was on shipments of drugs from Porto to Wantansuyo, Peru, to Santa Marta, Colombia. There was an airplane full of cocaine once a month that flew. And they would put me on the plane and put me under. And during that time, they could ask if there was police or bad weather and they would get accurate answers. So if you think about why we can't win the war on drugs, you got to look at what the other side's using. And this is this is like high end CIA black ops stuff. Um, but that's what they did. And I did that for a couple summers down there. And then I started to eventually lose the ability. The guy that put me under um, after, you know, five or six trips, he had an entire notebook of questions from people in the town. Like they told everybody about me. I was a brujo, brujo, if I'm saying it right. Uh, like a like a warlock is what they referred me and I the kids would stay away from me and stuff it was a very sad I was a very broken child at that time but um and there was an essence of family ask in Peru I missed it I missed that town for the rest of the 20 years and I still do and and so the 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 dynamic is you, you you were taken Thursday night 
um, they got your agreement. In the book, you actually talked about them inserting some kind of needle, needle, like by the eye socket and right in the tear duct and pulling out your consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then so please. So I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. We're here to hear you talk. Well, it's like, I don't, it's, it's neat to meet somebody that read the book. And so we can go back and forth really quick. Um, Yeah. So they did a test. They actually did a medical test on me to find the dominant eye. And then the needle went in the tear duct of the dominant eye is what they did. And, and the feeling was like, obviously like they stuck a needle in there, but it felt like I got punched. You know, when you see stars from being punched, I saw stars from it. I saw the, you know, the same you know, I don't, I, hopefully everybody listening can't relate to what I'm saying by being punched in the eye by a grown man as hard as he can. And so where you see stars, hopefully, hopefully most of you don't, can't bring up the visual, but for those of you that can, it was like they stuck a needle in my eye and it was the same exact experience as being punched in the eye, bam. And then I woke up with no memory of where I was. And so I believe I, I kind of theorize, cause I don't know for sure, but I theorize that it was a clone that it was a cloned body and because that because it had no memories in it because i woke up i was in i was taken out of my body put into the clone body and that body was a blank slate so they had you know like the speech came with me slightly but i didn't have memories of mom and dad or michigan or anywhere that i you know i didn't and then and the thing that kind of really uh, put a stamp on it was that at the end of the 20 years when they put me back when I woke up, it was the same procedure, but I woke up back into 10 years old with my memories. So it was as if I went from that body into the original body and I forgot those memories of those 20 years. And I remembered the memories that were gone from mom and dad in Michigan. You know, if that, I hope I'm explaining it to where you guys can, cause it, you know, explaining it to me is one thing because I lived it. I have memory of it. Explaining it to people so to get their head around it is difficult for me sometimes. So uh, this is great. And, and uh, folks, right, we, we're journeying this. And, uh, you know, uh, when this happened, uh, the honest truth is you began to exist in two places simultaneously for the next 20 years of your life. And that is another area to explore. But to keep the conversation kind of flowing, I want to just talk about the clone experience um, because that, oh my gosh, you know, there's a lot. So, so, so when you say you were, you know, taken to this um, portable room and in your current, and there was, you know, some programming that was done there uh, that was to a clone body with you in it. Then they took you to this house in the clone body. Then they took you to, mm-hmm. you're actually, doing this work for the people that are trafficking you over international boundaries and airplane in a clone body. And I, I just want to get my audience to understand that, that, that because I believe you. And actually I work with a lot of people who have and are struggling to understand why clone stuff comes up with them so much. There's because there's a lack of like context for the conversation. You have a lot of context. You're like, no, they suck me out. I'm, I'm in there. I go on a 20 year tour in a clone body or several. I mean, we'll get to that. But, you know, you're doing all of this. Wow. 
So you actually had some good memories of what you did in the clone body in South America. Yes. Well, um, you know, I was a broken kid, but there was, I was being taken care of. I had a handler and he had a family and his mom really took to me and she took care of me. And out of the whole 20 years, that was the time in Peru was the time that I felt most welcomed and like family atmosphere, like loved. So that was something that stood out to me. And I, that, like I said, I missed it when I, when I left, I always intended to, to return. I've looked into going back there. So something I was going to say earlier that I didn't say was that in 2016, I went back to the house in Seattle. I, I, I booked a flight and I went straight to Seattle as soon you know, with my, I got my memories back and I found it on Google earth. I had to go there and I worked with the researcher for a while, but I went back in September of 16, I went to the house and it was a freaky experience because I knew not only did I know the area, but I was seeing things like, Oh, that's new. Like, wow, that gas station wasn't there. They built that here. And Oh, there's that old place. that's changed. And like, I had that kind of, I had that kind of recollection. I actually got a hold of some research that the researcher I was working with. And I said, look, if my memories of Seattle are this accurate, they're freakishly accurate. I went into the general store and I knew my way around. I knew where the candy was. I went to the beach there and I knew where the rocks were, where you couldn't see them. I said, right up there is where the bigger rocks are. And I was on the phone with a researcher the whole time. But, um, and I said to him, I said, man, if, if, if the memories of Seattle are this accurate, I have to trust the memories of space. So, you know, the space of when I was sold into the program, in the space program. So I have to trust that those memories are just as accurate. I can't say because it's not like I came here and I was, I was fuzzy and I only got a couple things right. Like I'm freakishly accurate. When I drove up to the, I drove to the house, I flew to Seattle and I stayed the night at like, you know, some hotel in town in Seattle and I didn't know my way around. So I was Google mapping everywhere. I rented a car. And then the next day I drove down and drove over to the ferry that I always remembered. So I always remembered going to the ferry back and forth. And, and this is something that I talked to my mom with about when I was a kid and I had no idea. I was like, where's the ferry? You know, like whatever, I'm not gonna say the name on the thing, but where's this ferry at? She's like, I don't know, Tony, but why do you keep talking about it? But I went there and I said, this is the name that I had the names right from when I was like, you know, like it was a bleed through memory that, that happened. Rode the ferry and I Google mapped the way to the house because I'd found it on Google earth. So I had the address. And I put it into the Google Maps. But when I got into town, the maps were taking me straight. And I said, no, it's that way. Like, I went, oh, it's this way. And I turned with the way that I remember. When I got to the house, it turned out that Google was taking me over a quarter mile of dirt road. And the way that I went was a quarter mile longer, but it was all pavement. It was the way we drove to the house. Everybody avoided the dirt road. But Google was going to take me on a short stint over dirt road. Like, I actually knew the correct route over what the map was telling me. If you understand what that kind of experience was for somewhere that I'd never been, that I could prove that I'd never been. So that was a f absolutely. F and then before I got to the house, there was pine trees coming. I said, and I remember as a kid riding in the car with her, she would take us to the store and we'd always say, oh, we're almost there now when we saw the pine trees. And when I was driving up, I went, oh, we're almost there now. And then it was only a hundred yards up was the house, the gate to the house. And I, I just was like devastated that it was all real. You, you know, you're like, I wanted it to be wrong. I wanted what I were, I wanted it all to not be because I witnessed absolutely terrible things. So I would say this to anybody listening also is that my book is not some, it's not a, it's not a Star Trek episode. It's not, there's no happy ending. 
there's no, you know what I mean? It's difficult. The Jackie Kenner, who edited it with me in the very beginning, put it down, put, got away from, moved away. She said, Tony, I got to let you go. We were on Zoom call. She said, I'll, we'll talk tomorrow. And she went outside and threw up because of what we were talking about, because of the book. And, it, you know, and she's, I told her, I said, look, I, you know, I understand if you don't want to work with me anymore on this. And she said, no, she's like, this is why, the, it's the very reason why we have to get it done. It's because this is real, because this stuff did happen to you. And they did this to kids and they are, so they're out there doing it now. And this is the world works under these systems. So that's why we don't understand the world. I say it like this. I've said this in interviews. You know, if your leaders are passing laws that are inhumane, then maybe they're not human. <laughs> we'll get to that. Can you talk a little bit about Inyo Kern? What happened there? Well, um, I'll try not to drop names. You know what? I've I've dug up a, a like an absolutely mountain of evidence around what I remembered at Inukern and the projects around because the CIED classified the programs after the whatever X amount of years, twenty five years. Um, we started out. They were we were watching movies. They had like a heavy. Um, they were card. They were a mix of cartoons and news reels of like Vietnam combat footage and then it would go to a disney cartoon to snow white and seven dwarfs and it would go to animals being butchered and then it would flash heavy um they gave us drugs they gave us like a hallucinogen and we had helmets on that they were shocked that would shock us um as the movie that like it would shock you in a certain pattern and then as the movie changed it would shock you in a different way like it would go from a cartoon to a, a an animal being being butchered for for instance and uh, I don't want to be too graphic. I mean, right. But, um, and then the shock would change. So they were changing the way you thought. Um, and that went on for a long time. And then they started with um, sleep deprivation. They would take us in and, and hurt us and then put us back on the movie and see, and then ask us at the end of every day, the kids were called in one by one to the doctor. We called him the doctor. And he would ask us, how do you feel about the movie today? He was, he was the entire time he made a report. He asked us questions and made a report on what we were thinking. But um, at a certain point, and this is also a piece of evidence for the, for the people, because there's a group of people that did research into remote viewing that had a certain personnel that invented sleep deprivation, uh, mind forms of mind control for people. But uh, they began with sleep deprivation, where every 15 minutes, uh, an alarm would go off and the lights would come on and we had to stand up next to our bed and they'd come by and slap us and we could go back to say, smack you hard in the face, you'd go back to sleep. Or they'd come by with a cattle prod and zap you and then you could go back to sleep. And then 15 minutes later, it would start all over again. And once that happened, I lost all track of time. I, um, you know, I worked with researchers, how long were you there? Looking back at it now, I remember that I got in Peru and there was a kid that had a night, an 82 t-shirt and they were making fun of him. So it was like January. It was, they had just did new year's. So by the time I got to Peru, they had just had new year's Eve and it was 83. So that means April of 82 till, you know, um, November or so is how long I was in Inyo Kern of that, of, of that year. And then shipped off to Seattle for a week, about maybe two weeks, a week or two weeks, and then to Peru. <laughs> excuse me um so i mean after it was all said and done after the sleep deprivation we they tested us 
there was an aptitude and they were testing us and um we passed we couldn't he said he said i didn't think you guys had it in you were you're going to be theta so it was a echelon it was a chair chapter and we were all qualified for theta and he began with um psychic experiments meditation they were teaching us we got to sleep and um then he was doing uh, we were getting techniques that are founded that i found from the uh, monroe institute so and you know, I don't want to incriminate them because I'm, I, I, um, I think that the Monroe Institute binaural programs of meditation and out of body, I think they're very important and I don't want to demonize them, but there were, there were, a, there were personnel that were well-versed in the Monroe Institute form of out of body that were working alongside in this program. And so we did do the, the Monroe curriculum for good to, to go out of body and remote view. Um, but they were giving us, they were giving us minerals. It, it did, it wasn't like drugs because they would make us drink a cocktail, but I didn't feel that I had a buzz from it. So it was a, it was something else that enhanced the ability. And then we would had big headphones and they were putting on the binaural and then we had a targets. We went out, they painted rocks, different colors and hid them out in the desert on hills. And they had like a flag, different flags on each hill. And we had to go out. That was the target. We had to go out remote view and find the gold colored rock and, uh, and see. And so it did work. It worked. These program, this worked. And then they did the, uh, the oxygen tent where they would lower oxygen and we got near death and they would get a bell would ring. There was just a regular bell, like a, a room service bell ding. And then we would, they would give us oxygen and wake back up again. And it went on for hours until uh, we eventually spoke as an adult. I remember that I remember saying, Hey, let this kid die that a voice came through me and said, let this kid die. Either, either let him die or get him up, you know, like in the lights flickered and they said, they got excited, doctor, we've got one. And so that was what it was. And that was the beginning of that entire program that, of that technology. And, and like I said, they, I, I, you know, I researched what I remember. So I don't remember it from then, but from research, I found that there's a version of ketamine that they were using in Vietnam for field operations. So it, it worked It worked in the field that they didn't need an anesthesiologist. They were using ketamine to put soldiers under and then they could operate on them like in the jungle during right after, right on the spot in combat. And what they, what happened, what it was documented and the CIA ran with this info, but the soldiers were telling um, accurate predictions of the next day of the battle, what was gonna happen. When they were put under with this drug at near death, the soldiers were channeling and telling what was going to happen the next day. So they made note of it and quickly made it illegal. Sorry, I got a train in the background. If you guys, I live in town. <laughs> it's only um, coming through slightly. You're, you're doing okay. great. Yes. Um, what, what, another thing that I wanted to say was uh, the ketamine from, from that when they, when they drugged us, there was another thing that I thought was relevant, but now the train interrupted. So sorry. Well, I lost my train of thought. That's true. <laughs> they were doing some pretty awful stuff there with the kids. I mean, um, sleep deprivation. Awful. There was abuse. They were that we had broken bones. There oh. were girls that were being raped. It was bad. I mean, you know, this is Heath and the doctor whom I've been accused of having Stockholm syndrome. Okay. So I've been accused of being sympathetic to them, and I don't see. Sorry, 
I don't see them as uh, he thought that we were clones, that we were short, going to live a short time, that we were, uh, it was a freebie. You know, like he still, I'm sure, wrestled with it, his moral conscience, but he was a scientist and he was there for the science of it. He was obeying a cookbook. He had a stack of books that told him specifically, step by step, what he was doing. He had, it was his first time administering this program to children because he was the remote view expert. And uh, he was looking at it completely scientifically. And I know that towards the end of the program, he was not himself. So he was a human, rather, albeit a non-perfect one. People do bad things to each other. It's no mystery. It's not, it's not news. Um, some people are evil. Some people can't be, some people can't be helped because their soul is just got from a bad place or, or they're damn hurt people, hurt people. You know, some people are just so damaged that, um, they're going to, it's going to take a lifetime to sort out, but everybody does bad things for some reasons sooner or later. And it doesn't mean that they're evil. Right. So it's, I, I think a lot of it is based on perspective. You know, the, the cat's evil to the mouse, the dog's evil to the cat, that kind of thing. Anyhow, this guy was very mistaken. And that program was something that was, he was in way over his head uh, with it. I'm not making an excuse for him, but I'm saying that this is the kind of stuff that, you know, was pioneered by in the, in, in the war era, World War II era. And that they've been working on mind control for a very long time. And there's mass mind control. Like we're all influenced. You can see it happen. Like, um, we're under, we're under influence from the media and everything. There's a lot of mind control going on out there. And there's no, it's, no, it's no coincidence that I can put on the TV right now. And I, I, this is a rant. Forgive me. Forgive me for this <laughs> rant. But it's no coincidence that you can put on the TV and you can flip through channels. And it'll take you a very long time to find two people falling in love. But it'll take you a very short time to find two people killing each other. Mm -hmm. there's there's violence in tv and the reason is because it shocks your brain and it makes you it makes you accept it to suggestion for one for two watching violence constantly makes people feel helpless it makes wow. you feel helpless in your own life that's the psychological side effect from it if you watch violence all the time you feel helpless because you're in a you're in a fight or flight mode subconsciously the whole time it, and so they bombard it with us. They bombard us with that so that people are held down. How many people can't move out of their basement? You know what I'm saying? Like from mom and dad, like we're seeing it. Boys used to move out at a younger age. They don't now because they're watching the violence and they don't, they feel helpless in their surroundings. So it's a programming. It's working. It's, we are programmed. We're programmed left and right. And what I found, because I, in a, the reason I'm saying this is because I researched it. I had those memories of going through the programming and I began to research it heavily. The subliminal programming that we that we get um, doesn't work if you're aware if you're aware of it it doesn't work but most people are not aware that they're being programmed so it took line and sinker so anyhow um, that's the end of politics for tonight for us <laughs> well I, I you know and, and here's uh here's the thing you know um as you talk about this this researcher scientist who is hurting the children and abusing them and you know it's true there are a lot of people in these projects that have gotten in over their heads and um i, I know people that have done awful things in projects um in alternate personalities that they, their presenters have absolutely no no agreement with the kind of obscene things 
awful things they've done in their alternate personalities. One of the, one of the biggest challenges in helping people that have come from a background of severe satanic ritual abuse is, is not helping them to understand the memories they repressed about their own abuse. But sometimes it's even harder to get to the, the memories of where they were the abuser of others. And I, I tell people all the time, you know, this is the, the higher, higher perspective that, that I lean into. He said, Jesus loves the victim and the abuser at the same time. Uh, and so, you know, we, we really do have to work past some of these things, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to talk about me and, and, and this stuff. I, I want to get back to this, this story because mm-hmm. you're, you're here at Inyo Kern. It's awful, but that's not where it ends because after you get done and you pass, they say, all right, you're moving on. Then they send you to this house that you remember you. I mean, in your physical body that I'm talking to, you were never there, but you got the memories. And what happened the first time they sent you to this house? I, um, it's tough to talk about sometimes, but, um, I, they sent me there and a big house on a, on a private, private house on an Island near Seattle. They were very wealthy. Um, maybe we could talk, I'll tell you some stuff off air. Um, just, just but, talk about uh, what you're comfortable with. I mean, high I waited, I, I was the first one there and they kept, kept me in a dog kennel. In a, in a cage and um then she, they, she left for the day and came back late at late at night and there were two more adults with her a man and a woman and two other children and um the following day or the, it was the following day they were having satanic rituals and i i witnessed um you know i witnessed a murder there and so it was a, uh, and then, and then, so it was all in ritual form. And I think I described it pretty well in the book. I don't know. I haven't read, I really, I haven't read that part. I wrote it years ago when I first, like, I'm I, like, I wrote this chapter in like 2016, 2017, and it got edited. And I, I, something that I don't like care to, I don't stomach well. Um, I, that being said, uh, that was the first time that they privately tested us kids. So they gave us all the IV and they gave us that drug, three of us. It was myself and another boy and another girl and a girl. And they put us on like uh, tables and laid us out. And we had our IV in there after their little um, sacrifice ritual where they were dressed up in costumes and naked. Um, And then they put us under and they gave us, and so they were getting, they were using us for information, you know, like, they were using us to get information of in their life to get ahead. Like these are corporate people. This is somebody that's very influential. Um, he was a billionaire actually, and um, has since died. But um, you know that's what they did. And then the next morning, they shipped us all out to our to our respective places. I never saw the boy or girl again. And that's I went on a private plane to Peru. Actually. It wasn't the next morning, but it was soon after. And there were there were other there were other rituals that they did. And it was a big thing for them to say that you had to give your identity to them. You had to agree, you know, like you had to go along with it kind of thing. And uh, it wasn't until I came back to that. After Peru, after I lost the ability, I went back to that house. It had been remodeled downstairs and there were bo- other boys living there. And, you know, that was a, um, 
a whole nother version of torture there. But I lived there a couple of years from the age of 13, uh, going on, you know, 13 till 15, 13 to 16, like those years I lived, came back there and lived and I witnessed some things then too. But, uh, you know, I just don't know how graphic you want to get on there. That's all. That's um, I'm kind of biting my tongue here because I just don't know. You don't. Kind of... You don't have to. And 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 let me tell you something, Tony. This on this podcast, my podcast, right? I go there. I've been going there for years. In fact, my my audience is now on the edge of their seat. Like Dan Duvall, stop him from biting his tongue, please. Like I can, you know. <laughs> uh, so so you know we we, we I mean. We, we can go there. They, 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 I see that as my job, right? Um, sure. th- there's a lot of folks that I think get into this because they are very interested in um, just having their own curiosities kind of, uh, you know, nourished or whatever you want to call it. Um, but but I, I'm, I'm here, one, because I'm advocating for, for others and, and your details are someone else's key. That's the, the truth. That's what I found over the right. years of doing this podcast. Actually, it's in the it's in the finer points where other folks find what they've been looking for. And it's like, that's the key I've been missing. And um, we watch people then connect with breakthrough and all kinds of what we're about. But yeah, yeah, you, you can go as far as you want. You know, and 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 there were parties that that was a big part of your book. Um, so what went on? So before I went to Peru, I just want to say this. So this is an important um, distinction to make. Mm-hmm. And obviously these people were very, so what I learned was they were not just making this up. This was something that had been going on. This was a culture that had it down to a science, everything that they were doing, traveling the kids, drugging people, doing the sex parties, the rituals, the murders, Everything was absolutely down to a science. They had no fear of the law. They had no fear. They, were, they, they weren't stressed out. You would think that people committing these crimes would have stress. They had zero stress because this was a way of life for them. And it's been good. So that, that I conclude that they grew up in the same culture and that it's been going on for a very long time. So that being said, there was a ritual that they did that was less of a religious type of um, thing, but more of a scientific thing where I believe they were trying to get us kids, they used us children, and then they wanted to channel uh, some other entity through us to get, and they they kept calling it master and like, you know, like it was some entity they regarded as, as higher than them, but it wasn't a god or an angel or something. It was another person or an ET or I don't know what it was, to be honest with you, but it was something that was very, very malevolent. Um, they were trying, there was a, 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 was a ritual and they gave us a, a flower that they crushed up mortar and pencil style and put it with wine and made us drink it. And it only lasted like 10 or 15 minutes, the effect. And then they, you know, the, the, you know, like in church, you know, the big incense burners that they have on the chain, they swing and it makes the big clouds. They had those two of them, two or three of them. Maybe it was one. I don't remember exactly, but they had, it was a couple of them and they made a big cloud of incense above us and they were chanting around us. And I swear when I looked up, so the girl and the boy and me, myself, we had the same hallucination. Like it was the same. 
So we looked up into the smoke that was above us where they were blowing the incense smoke and we could see a being looking down at us. Um, we call him the glass man. He looked like he was made out of green glass. And uh, the boy said something to him and scared him off. There was like a crazy, like I, I you know, it's in the book kind of thing. The, the difficult stuff to talk about, but that's why it's so, it's a luxury for me to say it's in the book, man. Mm. But he went away and they didn't get what they wanted. So that being got mad that we were the kids chosen. And the boy was, you know, I'm here for you. The boy said, this is the reason I'm alive. I came back for you. Come on, you know, like it was something between them, like a soul thing. And um, so he went away and then they, he was embarrassed because there were other people there for the ritual for the first time that didn't get any information. And so it was a failure for them on that. But and it, it was time specific. Like there was only a, he said, we have to do it now by 11. Like there was a, they couldn't just do this, whip it out and wait till next Thursday and do it again. Like it was time specific. They had only one, only a few minutes out of the year that they could make contact with this being in this manner with uh, children or whoever was taking that, that hallucinogen. So this was more of a science. It was more of a technology than a spiritual belief is what I'm saying. So this was, this was what, and obviously, like, again, uh, you know, when I'm making, trying to make sense of all these things that I remember during my, in the last six years, I went back and researched it. And when you look at ritual human sacrifice, I mean, what, what do you think about that? Like ritual human sacrifice, like you're working with people, like, what, like, why would somebody do that? Uh, well, since you're asking my opinion, um, human sacrifice has a, a lot of uh, spiritual ramifications. First of all, the, the, the fear, the pain, the torment um, of the person dying actually fuels the atmosphere. So if, you, if these occultists want to conjure something up or summon a being and, and bring it in, um, it, power up a portal or, or so on and so forth, like that, that release of human blood and that slaughtering of human life puts a lot of power in the atmosphere to accomplish those ends. Um, they also, there's a lot of associations to the blood and the body fluids that uh, the occultists lean into. Like they drink the blood, they, they consume the body fluids. It's, it's, it's a requirement for a lot of these rituals to have that ingested, to pass it around, put drugs in it, mix it up. Um, it, it uh, you know, in a lot of their beliefs, like consuming some of this blood type eating people even the cannibalism is actually taking on that person's life force so they they think they'll have like longer life themselves be stronger like it, it, it's really sick stuff but they believe it um so, so the reason i asked is because i couldn't make my i couldn't get my head around it i, I had these memories of the, how this happened and i could not get my head around this like where did they learn to do this how could they have done that and I, um, whatever, when, for my first live talk, I started researching it and I wanted to talk about slavery and how it's legal because of the 13th Amendment. But I went in a different direction. And what I found was that I thought, um, okay, so like in the Bible, um, was Abraham was supposed to kill it, sacrifice his son. Remember that? 
I thought, man, they were doing it in the Bible. So what, where was this in history? And I found that pretty much everybody sacrificed people. Ritual human sacrifice was global prior to Christianity. In fact, that is what, that is one of the main things that Christianity accomplished was getting rid of ritual human sacrifice. The Hawaiians did it. The in, American Indians did it. The Irish were sacred, the pagans uh, all across Europe, the Huns, the Mongolians, the Asians did it. Japanese did it. Everybody was committing ritual human sacrifice in a ritual manner. They were sacrificing people and they were eating them. And this was all around the globe. The, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that it was that widespread. When I started researching it and started Googling it, getting into articles, the entire globe ritually was sacrificing people, either enemies of war or people that didn't stand out in the, you know, for whatever reason. And some of them were sacrificing their best and brightest. They were sacrificing the, not, not the prisoners. And th there was a story about the fall of um, Carthage, fall of Carthage. I'm getting that right. Sorry, it's late, but it, they had gotten rid of, they had made it illegal to ritual sacrifice the Carth Carthaginians. But when the Romans were coming, right, when they realized that there was no way out, they realized that they were going to be conquered. They began to sacrifice their children to try to get, figure out a way. Um, so that's what Jesus did after the end, he had the last supper. They said, what are we going to do after they kill you? Are we going to eat you? Should we eat you? That's really the question that came up that night. And he said, no, you're going to drink whenever you, you're never going to do that ever again. No more sec, no more eating people. You drink the wine and you, the body, my body and my, you, you, I'm sure you know the story, but that's what he did. And when, wherever Christianity went and took hold, that was the main, um, where they butted heads with paganism was that you were no longer allowed to eat people with Christianity. It's, it's a fact that fell by the white, like it's a, it, it's a fact and you can look at, you can research this, but it's fallen to the wayside because they don't want you to know about ritual human sacrifice because they're still doing it. So for whatever scientific reason that it is, the other thing I'll say is that the, the first night I was there, I had been through, and, and now back to Seattle, 10 years old, fresh out of Inyo Kern and fresh out of the uh, mind fracturing and just, you know, the sleep deprivation and everything. So I was mentally broken. I was not really all there. That first night I witnessed a ritual human sacrifice. And he said, you either... And he had a fancy um, cup with their blood and he was draining the blood out of a child that was younger than me, uh, probably a five or six year old boy that I saw was my first cadaver. And he made us drink some and eat some. And he said, if you refuse, you're going to go up there right next to him. It makes no difference to me. He explained he's, he's with his um, with his mask on, with his Baphomet mask on. He's looked down. I'm looking up at him. And I'm 10 years old and I did not have the words to argue with him or do anything. So whatever I did, but the, the, what's interesting and of note, and I hope I got this right in the book because I can't really remember how it, what I wrote it in the book, but the next morning about four or 5 AM, I woke up before the sun came up and I was smart. I, I began to plot my escape. I remembered where, how far it was to the boats, to the ferry. And I, I began to formulate a plan for my escape. And as the sun came up and it wore off, I went back to being stupid 
and I no longer, I never got that again. And I realized that there was no way I could figure out to escape. Like I didn't have the faculty, but oh, for a few matter of hours, I had the mental faculty to do that. So I did it. If is it from the ritual? Is it from some other drug? I don't know. I mean, but if you look at it, if then I, I connected that with historical events, you got to think about the whole adrenochrome thing where they scare kids. We had this recently about the, yeah. you know, there've been videos, whatever. It's a lot about it. Yep. But from what I experienced in that regard, it seems to be real. And that if they take a kid and scare it and there's adrenaline and then there's a drug released and it makes you smarter. And so if you think about that kind of technology, oh, the movie, there's that movie. Uh, oh, wow. It's on the tip of my tongue. I got to get this movie where they, uh, he takes the drug and he gets smarter. Um, Bradley Cooper is in it. And it's I like he think takes, I, I remember they take those pills. About. They yeah. take pills and they can't get it and they can't get off the drug because it, it makes them sick. What is that movie called? I can't, um, I don't remember the name. Limitless. I mean, I, Limitless. Limitless. The movie's called Limitless. And so if you look at that, the movie is basically a tale of adrenochrome. It's the tale of, of them killing little kids and drinking the blood. That's the deal. That's the same drug. That's what's going on. And at the end of the movie, he's going out, he's on his way to Washington. Because when you get really smart, you get bodyguards and you go and take power rather than fortune. He went and made a fortune real quick. And then so I think we have a lot of our leaders, a lot of the politicians had access to this tech, ancient technology of being smarter. You know, and I think it started out not, you know, when you roll back into 6,000 years ago, there were tribal communities, you know, eating people was a necess necessity, right? They ran into droughts and times where they didn't have food and somebody died and there was a dead body there and we're made out of food. So I think that, that that's how the discovery was made. And it was a well. practice that was global. You know, and, and, and I mean, for the hardcore researchers, you know, there's also a huge connection to um, what the Bible describes as the Nephilim, these uh, pre-flood, or you could call them antediluvian giants. They were eating people. I mean, it was- They would eat people. They ate people. And uh, the, the, a lot of these Canaanite religions that came later on, I mean, they continued. And of course we have uh, another biblical situation with Moloch, and, um, you know, they actually had a statue of Moloch, I was told, on Epstein Island. But, um, you know, Moloch was, they, it was basically a grill where they, they would put wood in the arms and turn the wood on. And then they put the babies on the arms that were heated up by, and it was grilled them alive. We called it passing through the fire. Um, and, and it was a day at the office for those people. Like the society was okay with this. That's yeah. the thing that we, it's so hard to understand. There was a, a movie, I don't know if you saw it, uh, Dune. It came out mm -hmm. recently. And so it was a remake. Um, and they have this, this awful scene, right? Uh, where they, they actually have a lot of the step pyramids, ziggurats, and, and like the Mayans. And they have bodies of humans, you would assume, um, that are dead or dying. And they're draining the blood into the step pyramids uh, to power up the army that's about to go to war, right? Giant, massive human sacrifice ritual right there, PG-13. But this is, <laughs> they're telling you, like, this is how we get power. That, that's, 
this is how we power up evil things that we want to do, um, which is what they, I mean, every case, like I, I talk to a lot of people that have witnessed human sacrifice in these contexts and yeah. It's the same thing. So I, yeah, I haven't really, I, so I don't really work with, I work with people that people reach out to me and I do consultations and I work with people that were basically ET contacts. Yes, they had some kind of either military extraterrestrial you know i was taken it was the military and then there was an et there and i don't remember vaguely what happened so i work with people a lot but not a lot of sra people um it's all completely those people seem to be like in a different um community that what what's exposed to to my information um, so but um, that was a huge i'm sorry no go, no it's okay I just, I want to say that in the beginning, some things that I'd remembered, like I didn't have great accuracy in the first six months of my, the memories were still coming and not, not really making sense. And just over time, they kind of, the more, you know, as they filled in it, the, the timeline did, but in the beginning, one of the researchers didn't want to work with me because I got a few things wrong about um, the spaceships. I got some facts wrong about the spaceships, about a, about a incident that happened in the solar system. So I got some facts Wrong. He checked it on somebody else who turned out to not be as reliable as we thought. But he quit working with me, and I went on to work with another researcher who was an SRA researcher. And it turns out that the things that I said about the rituals, she said, there's no way you could have known that if you weren't a Satanist. So there were things that I described inside the ritual that said, there's no way, nobody knows that, and you have to actually be, you know, and I'm not a Satanist, I can prove that, and you know, I've never dabbled with any of that stuff. So that actually got me back on the radar. It was a very, um, uh, it was a point of evidence. So, you know, when you come out with somebody's an abductee, they have to have evidence. So any point of evidence is a kind of a big deal. So anyhow, I just wanted to mention that, that it was confirmed through somebody that was a practicing Satanist, that a former practicing Satanist, in the, pretty high up in the temple of uh, Set. No, I forget, I forget the name of it. Goodness. But the, and, and from my view, uh, the worlds overlap. That's and, and, and in your story, they certainly did. Um, it, it's just, okay. Very, very fascinating how you walked through in, in your book, all of these different aspects of your story, connecting them in a narrative that's linear. And so, so from there, I want to kind of, you know, talk about the next linear part of the story, which is, all right, so we, we, we went to the house and there were rituals and there was Satanism stuff. I mean, they might have been, been Satanists. They might have been some other group. We, it doesn't really seem to be clear what they actually were. They were evil. Then they shipped you to Peru and there was that part of your story. And then they sent you back to the house. And all of this actually predates space right so walk us and here's what i'm going to do because what we're going to do is we're going to run out of time so i'm going to have you start walking us through and then we're going to find an extraordinarily inconvenient point in the story to press pause and then we're going to have you back but not yet (laughs) so you get to the house and, and and what happens in the house and how does that lead you to the space programs so in peru i began to lose the ability Uh, they put me under on the flights and we went once a month 
And I started like gibberish. It was like I was speaking tongues. So they called and said, what's wrong with this guy? I was getting sicker and sicker too. Uh, so it was like right around puberty. So maybe that was something to do with it. I mean, who knows? There were factors. So they sent me back to the house in Seattle. I was damaged goods and a cargo plane came and got me. And I flew back to Seattle. And when I went back, it had been remodeled and there were five or six other boys living there. And um, with the wife of the guy and he was in and out, but it had changed. And um, it was like being in foster care. And a few times they had, like I said, they had a strict calendar of events and a few times a year, especially in the summers, they would throw parties, private parties. And um, sometimes military personnel would come and they'd make us line up. And we were basically sex slaves. We were basically, you know, used for sex slavery. And then they would have parties and not, not always, you know, like they would have a party and they would pick three of us. There'd be nine kids. Kids would come and go. There were sometimes boys would come and stay a month and they'd go. We'd never see them again. Um, there was a rotation. There's quite a bit of evidence I've dug up around this whole part chapter of what uh, happened. But um, that's what happened. And every day we were on a very strict diet. They kept us. They told us that people are attracted to people with low body fat. And that's why we can't eat. And so we had a very strict diet. It was one egg and one piece of toast for breakfast. It was a sandwich for lunch and it was tofu and a salad for dinner every single day the same thing budgeted out and locate we were starving we were always hungry mm -hmm. um but we took pills they had a little you know you know the little uh, plastic cup like a jello shot or whatever size cup full of pills every morning that we took and then we had calisthenics we had a, there was a military guy that worked up a workout routine of like push-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks calisthenics and then we had the rest of the day lay around, do nothing. We had a swimming pool. We had a games, you know, like we played checkers and stuff. It was a, it was a leisurely, horrible ex existence. It was very um, emotionally, emotionally uh, vacant. And, you know, like it was, there was, we lived in this house as experienced like, like foster kids. I, my heart goes out to foster kids because there was no parental love. There was no love. We were, in fact, it was a toxic environment because some of the boys were, were raping each other. Um, and we were being programmed to do, to do that, to do these acts. Um, one day they changed the pills. They changed the, the pills that were in there and I got sick from, uh, from them. I took the pill and I got sick for, you know, it was four or five pills, like vitamins, who knows what it was, but I got sick. And I said, uh, you know, they, I don't feel good. And the next day it got worse. And the third day I vomited and I couldn't do it. I couldn't hold it down. And I said, can't we just go back to the old ones, you know, and she called and they said, no, that if I couldn't take those pills, then I was going to be sold to the military. That was the exact verbiage. If you can't handle these, they're going to sell you to the military. And at that point, I was dead to everybody there. They quit talking to me. Everybody, they was just like, I was dead. I walked in the room, they acted like I wasn't there. And a couple of weeks later, she drove me off to like, we, we took a ferry and we went to a, like a big store, like a shopping store, like a grocery store shopping center to the beat behind it where the dumpsters were and two guys were in a box van they gave me an injection and i woke up on a spacecraft on my way to the moon and that uh, said douglas embroidered on the seats and that whole scene in the book i'm very um very proud of that because i remembered that conversation and i shared it with people and then i went on and found the logos and the actual the corporate 
history of how that works. So that conversation in the book, I'm very proud to have it in there. And that was another one that Jackie, my good friend who edited it, wanted to change. She's like, we don't even need that. And she fought me. She fought me for weeks to not put the logos in the book because they're, you know, but, and I, I actually checked with people and other authors and said, is this okay? And they're like, yeah, it's not a problem. You're not, you're not selling that logo. So, um, but we fought over that. And, but I was, I fought to keep it in the book because I feel like that is an important um, historical thing, you know? So, but anyhow, I was on a large, large spacecraft that would look like an airplane that we were rows of seats only instead of like 10 seats wide, it was like 20 or 30 seat wide rows. And uh, we went to the backside of the moon in a couple hours. And I, like, I woke up, you know, I had been unconscious and they looked, clearly loaded me on there, carried me on and put me in my seat. And we went to a base that looks like the Pentagon on the back of the moon. It's shaped like a trapezoid instead of a pentagram, but it's the same building. It's the same, uh, you know, building style as the Pentagon. And um, began another round of kind of mind control, less traumatic, but the same kind of stuff like, like mind control. And they were programming fight or flight response to, they were programming me to not run from certain death to run at it and kind of be like a suicide bomber. Uh, that was the programming. And that was, my, that was the extent of my military programming. And um, from there, I was shipped to, Mar we, had, we had some things that we were tested in an arena against a large insectoid. And then it was a success and shipped off to Mars and the Mars flight. Um, okay. I'm going to pause you on the Mars flight. We'll press rewind just for a second here because uh, sure. I, I do have a question. So the programmers on the moon, were these humans, Americans? No. Were they, what would you classify the programmers on the moon as? So that base I was handed off and they were, they were tall um, if you think about looking at the classic gray, like the big head with the olive eyes, black eyes, but they were white. They were like a pale white color and they mm. were taller. They were bigger than the other grays that were walking around. I mean, uh, when I say tall, I mean, uh, six, seven feet tall. And, uh, they were taller guys, very lanky and they were extremely rude when, and they spoke telepathically to us but they were very condescending and very rude. They were not, they did not have a good bedside manner and they would plug me into a machine and, you know, not plug me into a machine, but sit me down in front of a screen and I would watch and give me sometimes give drugs and sometimes not, but I would watch movies with situations. And they were, it was funny because they were movies on earth. They were actors somehow that they got act So, you know, and some of them looked like they were back in the fifties and sixties, they were older. And then some of them were newer. But they were movies and it would say things like, you know, it'd be two boys and this is Bobby and this is Ricky. And then an officer would come up and go, Ricky, what are you doing? Did you see something like they would pose a question and then the movie would stop and go, should Bobby say anything or should he just mind his own business? And you had choices. It was like a choose your own adventure and you would get the choice and it would play out. And it always ended with somebody had to give their life. Like hmm. the movie would end, uh, Bobby should give his life for this, for his friend, for his, for his cop, for his um, brothers, you know, like it would always end it like where you, the movie always ended where you chose the, the gruesome end, you know, like it was like that because they were programming fight or flight response away from you. They weren't really heavy like the other movies, you know, in Inyo Kern, it wasn't really like that. It was, they were situational. 
they were situational choose your own adventure kind of movies and it tracked the tech tracked your eyes so there was no mouse or anything like my hands were i was tied up and uh it would show two answers and you would stare at the answer you wanted and it would blink is this your answer and you just take staring you it tracked your eye movement so where you were looking on the screen is how it knew what like that was the mouse how you use the mouse and so and that was like a long time that that happened and then they tested us and uh we worked and so that was that was that how that was and the insectoid what kind of an insect did it look like to you so it was big i mean in the beginning so i whatever within your current with looking up places i always remember you know i was a kid and so things were bigger back then. You ever go back to your high school and you go, man, I thought it was so much bigger. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it was I so do. much bigger back then. And nowadays it looks like this little dinky place. So the insectoid was the same thing. I originally described him as the size of a car, but it's fair to say he was the size of a Harley, a motorcycle. It was a big, very big insect. And it was a, like a spider, but it had, uh, you know, I wasn't of the mind to count the legs on it. I did, but it was more of a spider insect. And it would move quietly. It was very big. And it was very obvious that you could not get to it without getting hurt. Um, it was not possible. If you've, ever been in, if you've ever been in the zoo and seen a lion, you quickly realize that you have zero chance against a lion in any kind of physical altercation whatsoever. It's got you beat in every, every facet. And this insectoid was in that class of, of animal. Um, and I believe it was more of an animal than an intelligence intelligent being i think it was more like a giant animal like the insectoids that there are there there are smart humanoid uh people there are people that are insects but i believe this one was kind of lesser um but it came it moved quietly and then it would stand up and it made a sound like a beating and it's just like a like a you know like two pieces of bark hitting each other like something it hit in its chest and it would burp, 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 burp. And it would move, puff up its chest, and then it would go back and be silent. And it crept up to us when it figured out what was going on. And uh, one of the kids, we were given grenades. We were given instantly detonating grenades. And one of the kids ran at it and blew himself and it up. And so that was the programming. And that was exactly what they wanted of us. And so the crowd, there was a crowd. They cheered. And lab coats came in. And I, after it was dead, I kind of got up and got a closer look at the So there's a picture in the book, too. Um, a very talented artist in Turkey, a guy that does comic books in Turkey, donated some time and did a couple. He did the the mantis from Mars and this one from the lunar. Um, he he drew it in like five minutes. He's so talented. So I put those in the book. Um, I would love to work and get, get a lot more art done. Artists are hard to find, you know. And then it's yeah. they they uh, every and then the art manifests in many different ways. So people that can draw an insect can't draw a face, can't draw a, a, a cavern. So you get you need it you you need actually it turns out you need a lot of artists to make something quality. So, um, but I've had I've been blessed. I've had a bunch of good guys work and donate their time and their art to me. So I can I have a slideshow that I do for um, in in real person. Wow! But it's it's hard to get people. It's hard to it's hard to tell people that hey, you know what on Mars there's an atmosphere and it's actually quite bearable and there are insectoids that are live underground and they're very smart. They're very advanced. They're very spiritually advanced and they're very smart and they can, they genetically, uh, they genetically alter themselves for each task. 
So when they dig a hole, they, they grow a bunch of digger insects and they dig the hole. And when the hole's made, those insects die and they, they grow a bunch of builder insects. And so that's their technology. Whoa. Wow. So they flew you to Mars after programming on the moon mm -hmm. and uh, a lot happened there. I can't wait to hear about it, but I'm going to invite you back to talk about the rest of that story. And, and friends, I, this is not cruel and unusual punishment. This is, this is actually, you know, they, they say time apart makes the heart grow fonder. And, uh, and, and if you really want to know what happened, you can always get his book because I, I do. I, it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating read. And, um, you know, uh, Tony, I, I, I do want to say thank you so much for giving us this much time today. And um, I really look forward to the next chat. Yeah, um, it always happens. There's a, we always cover in the, I knew when we were getting into depth in Seattle, I knew we were going to not even get to series to the series colony yet. And it's funny, that's the name of the book. I, and actually out of the 20 years, I spent about 12 years on series. So I was a resident there for about 12 of those 20 years. And actually quite a bit happened there um, that I never do talk about in a lot of interviews because there's so much to get covered. And the, the real evidence lies in the early years um, on earth. So talking about that is like, people have to know that there's evidence that I'm not just dreaming this stuff up, that there's a lot of things that have panned out. There's been evidence on series too. Um, that NASA confirmed for me in August of 2020, but we'll talk about that next time. Okay, please. Um, I look forward to it. This is a um, wonderful chat and um, you know, just the religious aspects never get brought up either. So the spiritual, the thing about the thing about advanced technologies where we're at and spirituality and consciousness and psychic ability is the fact that they're not separate things. It's mm. all the same thing. You know what I mean? Like it's all the same exact thing. And in fact, I'll say this, I'd like to say this before I go is that we were aware in our missions in doing interstellar trade missions from Ceres colony, we were aware that there was, there is a technological ceiling. So there, there are species in the universe, in the cosmos that they advance technologically. Like we make a better phone, you know, in 10 years, our kids are going to have better cell phones than us. Right. Because of tech, but in a million years, it's about mentality. It's about consciousness. There is no more technology because their minds grow strong enough. Their, the consciousness grows strong enough to do everything that technology can do. So, and they were fully aware of that. And those species tend to not rub elbows with species that have slavery or have mm. um, a lot of social issues. So we were banned. We were, we were not able to go there, but there, we were fully aware that there are beings in the universe that don't require technology. Their mind can do the job. <laughs> folks I've been talking with Tony Rodriguez until next time God bless and Godspeed you've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall visit me at dandevall.com where you'll discover merch books and the opportunity to engage in our private social network join the tribe by subscribing to our email list and supporting this podcast